The Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to Matthew. Glory to you, Lord Christ. Jesus said, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For whoever asks receives and whoever seeks finds. And to the one who knocks it will be opened. Or which one of you, if your son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good things to those who ask him? This is the gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Christ. Let us pray. Father, we believe that you inspired Matthew to record these words of Jesus. We believe, Father, that these words had power in Matthew's day, and they have power today if we will hear them. And so we pray, come Holy Spirit and open these words to us, perhaps as never before, that we would be changed more and more to be like Christ, for we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. I invite you to be seated. I learned afresh how to pray in Guatemala. I learned how to pray afresh in Guatemala. As many of you know, uh, I was able to be part of a team that was on a nine-day mission in Guatemala. We were up in Naba, up in the mountains um, with the Ishil people, and had the incredible pleasure and joy to be invited into 80 different homes to build stoves and water filters in one school. And it really taught me in that time, again, how to pray. And part of it was the fact that we went up the mountain. Uh, Naba is about 6,000 feet above sea level, but we had to go right over the mountain. So at the highest point, Clive pointed out that we were at 8,000 feet. And I am terrified of heights. And that mountain road right along the edge, it was a great joy for my 14-year-old who came with me to point out again and again to her dad just how close to the edge we were. I prayed really, really hard for that eight-hour trip. But that's not really how I learned to pray afresh in Guatemala. It really was being invited into these homes. Because so many of the families who we interacted with, these families living with nearly nothing, We heard them as they prayed with us, as the stove and the water filter were built. We prayed together, and we would hear the fervency and the joy in their prayers. And it struck me. It struck me because though, in one sense, a prayer of theirs had been answered, they had these water filters, they now had a stove in their home, but there were so many other needs in front of them, so many needs in front of them, enormous monumental needs, and yet despite that incredible list of needs, they could pray with joy, with fervency. I began to ask myself, how did they pray so fervently in the face of so many seemingly unanswered prayers? How does a person manage to pray fervently and joyfully in the face of so many, and I'm using the word seemingly, seemingly unanswered prayers? Because when you look at our text today from Matthew chapter 7, we see Jesus giving us some pretty jarring words. 
I mean, it opens with these jarring words. Chapter 7, verse 7, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. And they sound great, don't they? They sound wonderful, and then we walk out and we live our lives, and I'll tell you, if you're anything like me, how many times have I asked, and I really don't feel like I'm receiving, I can seek, and I sure don't feel like I'm finding. I can knock and knock and knock, and it doesn't seem to open for me. This is what we call the problem of seemingly unanswered prayer. And it gets to the heart of what it means to pray. It raises the question, what does prayer even mean? When we look at a world, when I look at these families that we interacted with who have so many seemingly unanswered prayer needs, and yet they have fervency. So often with this question of unanswered prayer, there can be a great sense of disappointment. If you talk to others about their prayer lives, it's amazing how often disappointment is right at the center of that prayer life. It's a little bit like the boy who's writing the disappointing letter to Santa. And he says, Santa, you did not bring me anything good last year. You did not bring me anything good the year before that. This is your last chance. <laughs> Signed, Alfred. When we look at our prayer lives, we have to deal with the question, how can Jesus' words, ask and you will receive, seek and you will find, knock and it will be opened to you, how can we understand those words? And this is really hard, especially when it touches on loved ones, the health of a loved one. When, it faces, when we face financial challenges, job security, challenges with our children, this is where it gets really to the core and it begins to hurt, doesn't it? Well, the challenge is that Jesus here is teaching us how to pray like Christians. And you may say, well, that's, that's a no-brainer. Um, but seriously, he's trying to teach us to pray like Christians as opposed to praying like pagans. You see, the challenge is, if we look at Jesus' words, ask and you shall receive, seek and you will find, knock and it will be opened to you, we can only really understand these words if we've learned how to pray like Christians rather than praying like pagans. And if you're like me, there can be many times as we open this, this text up, we'll see that we, good Christians, can fall into kind of pagan prayer practices. Are you praying like a Christian or like a pagan, because the way you answer that question will help you understand what Jesus is saying here. Christian prayer understands this. Pagan prayer, these words are mysterious. So here's the litmus test. You want to find out if you're praying like a Christian or like a pagan? Here's the litmus test. This is an ironclad litmus test. You answer this one question. Why will God listen to your prayer? Why will God listen to your prayer? Because the way you answer that question will tell you whether you're praying like a Christian or like a pagan. And don't worry, there's good news for those Christians who fall into pagan prayer practices. We can come back. Jesus wants to teach us again. Why will God listen to your prayers? There's a few different answers that can be given. The first three are pagan answers. There's the agnostic answer. There's the animistic answer, and there's the accomplishment answer, and they're all pagan. Agnostic, animistic, and accomplishment. Let's start with agnostic. Why will God listen to our prayers? 
Well, the agnostic says, God listens to my prayers because, well, I don't really know why he'd listen to my prayers. And the reality is this actually can be alive and well in the church at times. We can get into a habit of praying and, you know, we gather together and pray and we offer some prayers up to God. But if you were to ask why God would listen to that prayer, you might say, I, I really don't know. And, and I'm, to be honest, I'm not really sure if he is listening. I'll tell you, when I was an agnostic, when I was a non-believer, I prayed a lot. I would never have admitted that to you. But I prayed a lot. Agnostics have a tendency to pray quite a bit. They'll never admit it, but they pray like this. The rough time comes, problem comes. Okay, um, well, God, if you're, if you're there, uh, I, I could use some help now. Hey, this would be a great opportunity for you to prove yourself to me. And so I need you to, you know, to, to fix this problem for me. And then it doesn't happen. And you say, well, see, figures, right? But again, that, that lack of understanding. I, I don't know. Does God hear me? Does not God not hear me? It's like the boy who really has kind of an agnostic prayer life. He's, he's praying one day. You've heard me tell the story before, but the boy is praying for a bike, right? And he's by his bed and he's kneeling down and he's praying for the bike and he's shouting at the top of his lungs, oh God, I want a bike. And the mother just comes upstairs and says, come on, you don't need to shout. God, you, God doesn't need you to shout for him to be able to hear you. And he says, I know that, but grandma does. <laughs> See, he's not really talking to God at all. And that could be the same in our lives. We offer up prayers and they're kind of just good sentiments, but we don't really think that God is listening to us. And that's an agnostic approach. Why would God hear us? I, I, I don't know even if he does. But then there's the animistic answer. The animistic answer, animism is, is a sort of a view that often lives in tribal religions where you know, God is in the rivers and the trees and the, you know, the sky and the stars. And so God is in the stuff around us. And your job in an animistic world is to appease God, right? And so an animistic answer, why will God hear me? The answer will be because I get the right words. I've been able to bargain with God. Right? And that's the bargaining, manipulating approach. And don't think this doesn't live inside the church. I'm going to bargain with God. I'm going to give him something and he'll give me something back. I'm going to get the words right. I'm going to get the ritual right. And therefore, I'm going to twist his arm and then he'll do what I want him, me to, then he'll do what I want him to do. The, uh, again, if you go back to the same uh, boy who's praying for a bike, you move into the bargaining animistic response. And instead now he's praying one night and says, oh God, you know, if, 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 if you will give me a bike, um, I will be a really good boy for exactly two weeks. And, and the mother is listening to this and says, no, 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 no. Son, you can't bargain with God like that. And so it's a Roman Catholic family, and downstairs they've got a little shrine. And at the center of the shrine, there's a statue of the Virgin Mary, the Madonna. And so he goes and he steals the statue of Mary and leaves a little ransom note there. And it says this, okay, God, if you don't want to bargain like that, let's bargain like this. If you ever want to see your mother again, I want a bike. But the reality is we look at our lives and we see us kind of bargaining with God. Like, I'll give you a little and you give me a little. God hears me because I am able to bargain well. I'm able to sell him on my prayer. Matthew 6, the chapter earlier, 
Jesus says in verse 7, when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases like the pagans do, for they think that they'll be heard for their many words. They think, the pagans think they'll somehow manipulate and bargain with God to listen to them. When God doesn't seem to answer our prayers, the animistic answer is, well, I guess, you know, I got the ritual wrong. I guess I got the words wrong. I guess I didn't give enough of a bargain for God to answer. These are both clearly pagan, but they live in the church at times. If I'm honest, it can move into my life in times. But then there's the accomplishment answer. And this one, oh, this one almost sounds Christian. Why does God hear my prayers? The accomplishment answer says, God listens to my prayers because I'm doing pretty well right now. I'm being a pretty good person right now. I, you know, I'm, I'm going to church lots. I'm, I'm praying lots. I'm, I'm being a, a good husband. I'm, 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 I'm being a good person. So God is going to now pay attention to me because I'm behaving well. In, in Luke chapter 18, we get this uh, powerful parable that Jesus tells about two men going up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. And the Pharisee, Jesus says, standing by himself, prayed like this, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all I get. But the tax collector standing afar off would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Note that the Pharisee doesn't say he's perfect, does he? I mean, none of, a, none of us, unless, you know, there's some real, you know, challenges here with narcissism. No one here thinks we're perfect. But many of us here believe that we're better than most. That's the besetting sin, I think, in so many of our lives, is we know we're not perfect. We'll quickly say, oh, I know I'm a sinner, I'm broken. But let's be honest, God, between you and me, I'm a lot better than this guy over here. You know, and that's, that's beginning to lean into the accomplishment place. See, God, you can listen to me. You can hear my prayer because let's be honest, I'm doing pretty well, aren't I? I mean, I'm not like this guy over here. And as soon as we start going down that track, we begin believing that we are earning God's attention. We're earning his favor because of what we've done. And we've done this before, haven't we? We work extra hard at our holiness and our morality because we've got something coming up. We really, I got a job interview at the end of the week. You know, I got this thing coming up. And so I'm just, you know, I'm gonna, I'm gonna go to church like 10 times this week and I'm gonna be really, really nice to my spouse and I'm gonna give some money to the church. And then guess what? God's gonna pay attention when that job interview happens. And we can so easily fall into it. And it's called the accomplishment answer. And friends, it's not Christian, it's pagan. It believes that God listens to us because we've earned his attention with our morality. Agnostic, animistic, bargaining, accomplishment, all pagan. Here's the Christian answer. Why does God listen to my prayers? Here's the Christian answer. Because he's my father. Why does God listen to my prayers? Because he's my father. That's why, and that alone is why he hears me, because I'm his son. Verses 9 through 11, as we go on in our text, Jesus is teaching us to pray like Christians. He says in verse 9, he says, Which one of you, if his son asks for bread, will give him stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? 
If you then who are evil, I mean, that's kind of a blow, isn't it? You who are evil, but it's true, we're broken, we're sinful. If you sinful, broken, evil people, if you know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good things to those who ask him? I mean, what Jesus is getting to the heart of is that the fatherhood of God stands and has to stand at the center of our prayer lives. Why does God hear your prayers? Because he's your father. That's why, and that alone is why he hears our prayers. Now, you might say, where'd the alliteration go? You know, we had agnostic, we had animistic, we had accomplishment. Well, adoption. The answer, the only Christian answer to why God hears our prayers is because he's adopted us as his children. And this word adoption is really important in the Bible. It's really important to use that word adoption about our relationship with God because it tells us really the whole gospel, the whole good news. See, it's one thing just to say, oh, I'm a child of God. It's another thing to say, I'm an adopted child of God. Here's the little pop quiz I'll often give people. I'll say, okay, here's a pop quiz. How does a person become a child of God? Now, sometimes what they'll say is, well, they get created. I mean, in the beginning, God made us as his children, right? And that's not a biblical answer. In the beginning, God made us and forms every human being in his image. We're all made in the image of God. We all reflect a part of who God is, but we're not his children, naturally. We were born as creatures made in the image of God, but then God does something amazing in Jesus Christ. As John chapter 1 says, those who believed in him, that is Jesus, who called on his name, he gave the right to become children of God. You see, Jesus and his sacrifice on the cross, all that we celebrate in Holy Communion, his death and his resurrection, his salvation, that is what makes us children of God. And the language of adoption is so key. God made a choice. He made a choice to adopt us. Some of you know that my youngest brother, Philip, is adopted. Uh, he was adopted on my birthday when I was seven years old. I was not impressed about this fact. Why did the kid we were adopting have to get born on my birthday? My parents thought, oh, it's going to be such a great birthday gift. I said, really? The little kid's going to steal the glory from my birthday for the rest of my life? Yeah, that's a great gift. But no, in all honesty, I love my brother. But when we're regularly together, Philip reminds me of this fact. He says, mom and dad are stuck with you, Paul. They chose me. <laughs> and, and, you know, I got no response because it's true. I mean, I don't know what they were thinking when they chose him, but they chose him. The point is, Jesus says in John 15, you did not choose me, but I chose you. Adoption implies that God has made a decision about you and me. What's amazing about adoption is that in the ancient Near East, in the first century, when Jesus was telling this and, and talking about the fatherhood of God, when St. Paul goes on in Romans chapter 8 and Galatians 4 to talk about adoption, the really cool thing about adoption is that it happened all the time. You see, in the ancient Near East, what happened with adoption was this. If you were a business owner, if you were a landowner, and you had worthless, idiotic sons, you know, you just were like, oh my gosh, I cannot stand my kids. 
Then do you know what you'd do? You'd say, they are immoral, worthless sons. You would go out and you would find a really good, upstanding young man. And you'd say, I'm going to adopt you as my son. And it was legal. They actually would become the legal heir. And this is exactly the same word that is being used. But here's the reverse in the gospel. God has not gone out and looked for the best and the brightest. He went and looked after us. He went after sinners who were broken on the side of the highways and the byways. And he said to us, I am going to make you my child. You my heir, my legal heir. Galatians chapter four puts this gospel before us, this grace. Hear the grace. Hear that unearned, unmerited grace of adoption. Paul says in Galatians chapter four, verse four, he says, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. This is the good news of God and Jesus Christ. Jesus on the cross, Jesus' death and resurrection doesn't just save us from sin, it saves us for sonship. And you may say, Paul, you know, keep using the sonship and daughtership language, you know, sons and daughters, and it's true. It means for men and women, sons and daughters, but I'll tell you this one thing. I was being very careful in Ottawa a few years ago talking about, you know, sons and daughters, sons and daughters, sons and daughters. And this Iranian woman came up to me at the end of the service and she said, stop doing that. And I said, what do you mean? She said, stop doing that. Stop apologizing for the language of sonship. And I said, why? And she says, I'm an Iranian woman. I've lived under a, a culture that has put women at the bottom of the rung and that it's only sons who can ever be heirs. And she said, when I became a Christian a number of years ago, I was told that that language of son was now for me. I am a son in the full legal sense of that. And it just blew my mind. Because that's what it means. When we say sons and daughters, we mean full heirs. Just like Jesus is an heir, so we are heirs. Some of us here today may be wondering, how do I become a son or a daughter? It's adoption. God chooses you. But as John 1 says, we receive it. Whoever believes in him, whoever calls on his name, he gives the power to become sons and daughters. All you need to do today is call on Jesus' name. Jesus, make me a son of the Most High. Make me a son or a daughter of your Father. And he is faithful every time a person prays those words. And suddenly, Jesus' words start making sense when we realize that the reason God hears us is because he's our father. It all starts making sense. Ask and you'll receive. Seek and you'll find. Knock and the door will be open to you. Here's why I mean it makes sense. Because that prayer is answered in the context of him being our father. Here's what I mean. We can only understand these words if we understand that it is a father, our father we're speaking to. Verse 11, verse 11 says, if you then who are evil know how to give good gifts, good is the emphasis there, good gifts, not bad gifts, not harmful gifts, but good gifts to your children. Well, we suddenly realize that earthly fathers 
No, even broken as we are. We know how to give good gifts. We don't want to give our kids bad stuff. I remember when our second oldest was about two. She was a toddler. She was determined, determined to stick things in the electrical sockets. She just, I don't know what happened. The Lord touched that girl in a special way. She was determined. And of course, I ran to the hardware store and bought a billion of those plugs. And not only did I plug them, I put tape on top of them and I would check them daily. I was a paranoid parent. I mean, and, and, and what was her response to me? She was furious at me. How dare you stop me? I'm asking to stick something in that plug and you're stopping me. Sorry, honey, I only give good gifts. You're asking for something that's gonna harm you. She had to learn to trust her father that the Father had a better perspective than she did on what she was asking for. And so it is in our prayers. Verse 11 goes on to say, therefore, how much more will our Father in heaven give good things to those who ask? In other words, if I'm a broken father and I can give only try to give good things to my kids' requests, how much more will our heavenly Father give good things to those requests? See, it's really learning to trust the Father. See, that's why the fatherhood of God needs to be at the center of our prayers, because we need to learn to trust the Father. We offer our prayers, and then we trust him with those requests. It's why Jesus, when he teaches his disciples to pray, says, when you pray, say, our Father. Notice how he starts that prayer right at the beginning. He says, if you're going to learn how to pray properly, if you're going to pray like a Christian, you start with these two words, our Father. And friends, when we say that daily and when we say that together here, linger on those words, our Father. It's about learning to trust our Father with our prayers. For my birthday, many of you know I turned 40 in Guatemala, um, and for my birthday when I got home, uh, yes, I turned 40 and just be praying for my midlife crisis as it is about to come. Um, for my birthday, Monica uh, commissioned a painting for our home. And it's sort of a, it's, it's a mixed media. It's got wood bits worked in it and painted. And across it is my favorite verse in the Psalms, Psalm 20, verse 7. And that means so much because some of you have heard this story, but when that same little toddler I talked about was born. She was born very, very sick, very sick. And man, were we asking and not feeling like we were receiving? Were we seeking and man, we didn't feel like we were finding? And were we knocking on that door and we were not having it opened, praying fervently, oh Lord, would you rescue this child so sick? way up in the north, close to the Arctic. Lord, I'm saying to myself, we need a new hospital. We need a new doctor. And we're sitting there in the neonatal unit. And I hear these words in my head, you don't need a new doctor. You need me. And I said, yes, I need you. And then those words of Psalm 20, verse 7, some trust in chariots, some trust in horses, but our trust is in the name of the Lord our God. That is what the fatherhood of God at the center of our prayers is about, about learning to trust God, even with our hardest prayers, trusting him to do what is needed. And in that moment, as I've told you before, miraculously, by God's grace, that moment that those words went through my head and I said, yes, Lord, that little girl immediately started to improve. And she went home days later. That's not every family story, I know. But we saw the power of God asking, Paul, will you trust me because I'm your father? 
Are you praying like a pagan or like a Christian? The litmus test is this question. Why will God listen to your prayers? Is it because you've got an agnostic answer or an animistic bargaining answer or God help you, an accomplishment answer? I can fall into each one of those. No, you pray like a Christian when you answer that question, God hears me because he's my father. He's adopted me. And do you see what this does to our prayer life? I mean, if he's our father, I mean, think about it this way. No one can wake up the emperor at three in the morning except his child. We have access to the father. I learned how to pray afresh in Guatemala with those 80 families who were praying fervently in the face of so many unanswered prayers could still pray joyfully, pray fervently. How did they pray so fervently and so joyfully in the face of so many seemingly unanswered prayers because they knew that God heard their prayers because he was their father. We could hear it sometimes in the Spanish, padre, padre, padre. They could pray like this because they prayed like Christians. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, amen.